Please open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be picking up in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and again, we're going to, we're going to pick up in verse 8. And we're going to be speaking about godly leadership, and this is the second part here. But as you, as you make your way there by way of review, um, the last time I was with you, we went over the first seven dirt verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which are important verses, and they're dealing with the qualifications for overseers in a church. And overseers would typically be your elders of the church, your elders, your pastors, the ones who are the spiritual leaders over the church. And they're charged with uh, feeding you the word of God, uh, protecting you from false doctrine, for praying for you, to tending to you, and all those types of of things, administration of the church, making sure church discipline is biblical. There's a lot of those things that the elders and I are, are responsible for. And so we, we read in the first verses of, of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll just read them for you again, the first seven verses. Or yeah, It says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how would he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, but into the snare of the devil. And so uh, the overseer, the spiritual leaders of the church are to be men who are above reproach and who meet all of these qualifications. Uh, the reason being is that to lead a local congregation is a noble task. Paul tells us that it's a noble task. And so it requires a noble man. And that's important because of the truth being communicated is the gospel, it's important. It can't just be handled lightly. The people have to, in charge have to take the word of God for what it says and deliver it as it is. And that's really important because the word of God is important and also the people of God are precious. And so we don't want to have men in charge who are going to fleece the flock and, and do all that kind of stuff. And so the bar isn't to be lowered when it comes to the position of an overseer uh, people are to aspire to it. Men are to aspire to that position. It is something to reach out and stretch towards as the Holy Spirit grows and equips and calls a man by his grace. And when a man is called and gifted and empowered and equipped for that call, the church is blessed. And, we, and we've experienced that over our lives as we've all had different pastors uh, in our lives. And the elders in the church here have blessed me as they've shepherded me, encouraged me. And so uh, we're blessed. And so verses 1 through 7 speak of the office of an overseer of, in the church. Now in verse 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking to a young pastor, Timothy, who's just overseeing the church in Ephesus, who's got a whole bunch of leadership issues, he says to Timothy, beginning in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. And so Paul moves on from overseers to a different group of leadership within the church called deacons. Now, the, t the term deaconos in, or deaconos in the Greek describes someone who executes the command of another. That's kind of what it is, like a minister or a servant. That's the idea there. And so they would execute the commands of their master or their leader, their representative. 
They are a representative of them. And so the New Testament, we find the word diakonos in the Greek. It is translated as minister. It's translated as servant quite often. And it's very, very seldom translated in the title of, of actual deacon, which it is here in, in, I believe, Titus and maybe in Philippians somewhere. And so the role of a deacon in the church is the role of a ministering servant of Jesus Christ. That's what the word deacon means. It means a servant. So that's, that's just to be clear, all, all believers, by the way, all believers were to aspire to be servants of Jesus Christ. And so these are servants who have been elevated within the church because of their service, because of their calling, have been called out to positions of leadership of service within the church. Now, it's our aim as believers to become servants of Jesus Christ. It's not like, oh, that's their role. You know, when we look at elders, we go, okay, well, elders are mature. Like, it's, no, we're all moving for, towards Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness, amen? We all want to become uh, like those people who have been walking with the Lord for a while who understand scriptures and not only understand it, but it's actually drawn out in their character. We see Christ-likeness in them. We want to aspire to that. Same thing with deacons. It's not like, uh, you know, deacons like, oh, they've got a title, great, have a, have a good life. It's actually they're serving, and they're serving in Christ-likeness, and, and we all want to aspire to that. So we're all actually called to Christ-likeness. We see Jesus. He taught this. He taught this to his, his disciples, and not about the position so much as the action of becoming servants of Jesus. He, he taught it and he modeled it. So, well, just an example of teaching in Mark 9, 33 through 37, you're all kind of familiar with this. Uh, it says, and they came to Capernaum and he was in the house and he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? And what do we find out they were discussing? That they kept silent, verse 34. For on the way they had argued with one another about, her, with another, one another about who was the greatest. Any of you guys had that discussion? And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, let him be what? Last of all and what? Servant of all. And then he took a child and put him in the midst and taking him in his arms. And he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so the idea of a child being uh, the least among the society, not able to articulate very well, but, but just simply uh, the idea of a child is they're very believing. They're, they're hopefully obedient is the idea. And so he said, just be like a child. Do what I say. Be a servant of all. Lay down your life. Become humble. You know, what esteems a believer in the kingdom of God. And this is not the way the world works. They try to do it because they're catching on that it's the right way. And so they do these pseudo humility type things. But what, what esteems a believer in the kingdom of, of God is not how many people you have serving you. It's how great of a servant you are, how you've laid down your life for others that they might live. And so Jesus not only taught that, he modeled it, he showed it to them. And I'm just taking little cross-section examples throughout his ministry so we kind of get an idea. Jesus taught and modeled ministry. In John 13, we see the Son of God, right? The night before he's about to be betrayed, he goes ahead and he takes on the form of a servant. He gets on his hands and knees, he, he, he girds his loins, so to speak. He, 
He puts on his, uh, his outer garment and ties it around his waist, and he washes the disciples' feet. And, and I'll just kind of skip to verse 12. It says, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garment and, and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Jesus is like, you call me teacher and Lord. Guess what? I'm all that. Because he was. He was the son of God. But he says, in all of that power, in all of that authority, in all that I have and all that I am with my position, what did I do with it? This is verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Pretty powerful. It says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his masters. Disciples, you're not greater than me. Church, you're not greater than Jesus. Pastor Matt, you are not greater than Jesus. Amen? Which one were you amening to? <laughs> All of the above. But if you know these things, you are blessed if you what? Do them. You know that song, Lord, make me a servant. Yeah, make me a servant. So not only did Jesus teach, and not only did he model it, the apostle Paul went on after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus to tell us, he, he commanded us as well, let that same mindset that was in Christ also be in you. This is Philippians 2. We'll, we'll flip back to this at the end of service. But he says there in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's not the word deacon there. It's the word, it's the word uh, doulos, which is bondservant. The lowest of the low. He willingly took on the lowest of the low position, the, that of a, a bondservant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so we too are called to servanthood. This is a mark of maturity in the body of Christ that we would seek to serve rather than to be served and to put on Christ and realizing that we were actually saved to serve. The way up is down. Is that what the world teaches you? Is that what the culture teaches you? The way up is up, and it's over everybody else around you. Oh, but Jesus comes in and says, okay, check me out. You know how awesome I am. You really don't know how awesome I am, basically, the disciples. Look what I'm doing. I'm serving you. And he went on to model that to the greatest extreme, and that he served them and dying on the cross for them, laying down his life, Right? And so just as God has appointed overseers in the church who serve him in the ministry of the oversight of spiritual matters, the teaching of the word of God and prayer and all those types of things that, are, that pastors and elders are called to. So God has also appointed servant leaders in the church who are to serve in the practical matters of the, of, of, of the ministry. So it's not as if the word is the only thing. It's actually the doing of the word. <laughs> Amen? 
hearers and doers. And so there's the speaking gifts, and then there's the serving gifts. There's the, the proclamation, and then there's the application of, of the word. And so you see the body called to these two things as we work together and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to be servants, but God has also appointed within the church those super servants, as you would call them, who have oversight over the practical matters of the church. And before we get into the qualifications of a deacon, that word means servant, I just want to take you to Acts 6 where we see the beginnings of the role of a deacon develop. This is kind of the prototype for the deacon that would be developed later in the church. Acts chapter 6. So flip over there. Now keep in mind that there are no examples of deacons working out their deacon. They're not deaking in the, in the New Testament. You can't find it. You have the word servant used over 100 times in the New Testament. But unlike the word elder and pastor and, and let's say evangelist and all these things where you see how that's working out, you don't actually see the role of a deacon laid out in the New Testament. So the only thing we have to go off of is that Timothy is telling us here in, well, Paul is telling us here in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and then also in Titus chapter 1, it talks to us about the role of a deacon within the church. So we know that there are these people called servants within the church. But we don't have a clue as to what that actually look like what looks like. We only have the character qualifications of those people. And we often infer by the name servant, it means they're serving. And so we're going back to Acts 6 because the qualifications for these men in Acts 6 actually kind of parallel what he's talking about here about deacons in in, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, so we're going to kind of go back to the prototype of the deacons here in Acts chapter 3. Six. I hope that made sense a little bit. Acts chapter 6 gives us an idea of what a deacon looks like. It actually does. And so let me read verses 1 through 6 for us. Acts 6, 1 through 6. is now in the de- and these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so real quickly, historically, this is taking place really early in in the church. Jesus has ascended. The gospel is going out. Jews, this is in Jerusalem, Jews are being converted. Both Jews who are natural born Jews in Jerusalem, which would have been called the Jews here, and then Hellenistic Jews who would have had a Greek background, Jews from different areas, are also coming to the Lord. And what's happening is that there's a cultural issue within the church that the natural-born Jews, their widows were being favored over those Jews that were, had the Greek background. So you can see there's racial, social tension going on in the early church there. And so these are real important issues. And so uh, there's a practical need that's important here. The gospel was going out. People were being saved. And as these older women, which was the situation here, would come to the Lord, they left the safety net of their Jewish family. They were ostracized from their Jewish family. Now, that would be their social safety net. Their families would take care of the elderly. And by the way, we should take care of our parents. 
but they were kicked out because they left the flock, so to speak, and they came to Jesus. And so they were left on their own. And so there was a lot of poverty going on there. So who steps in? The church. The church steps in and says, we are obligated to take care of these older saints and the Lord. And so they had a daily bread distribution. They would give out food. People would give and people would give out food. And that's just kind of how it happened. And in that, people with their normal broken tendencies, anybody come to Jesus and not been perfectly fixed yet? Okay, yeah, got a room full of them. You can see you are all full of problems over there. Not me. And so, uh, yeah. And so there were problems that needed to be addressed, right? And you needed people who had godly wisdom in that circumstance to take over that. And so let's read on verse 2. And so there's this problem. It says, then the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so what was happening is that the overseers of the church who were called by the Lord to minister in the word of prayer, and they saw the importance when it came to them of this problem. The widows are not getting their food. There's some problems going on here. But if we go take times waiting tables, making sure everybody's okay, we're going to be pulled away from what God has called us to do. It's not saying that they can't do that, or there wasn't a time when they did do that. There was a call that they had in their life that God had set them apart for those purposes and those reasons. And the ben- it was to the benefit of the church and obedience to the Lord that they would remain in that call, which means that God also had prepared within the church other people who are able to take care of those practical matters with the church, the practical outworking of the gospel, loving one another, taking care of one another. While the word was going out and people were being saved by the apostles, then there was the practical applications of all of that within the context of the church. And it took godly leaders to take care of those matters. And so the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, and it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve God in the tables. Therefore, brothers, verse, verse three, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles here went to what seems to be, it says the disciples. So it didn't just say, hey, oh, you visited church. You're in on this decision. Come on. No, it went to the disciples, those who were truly following Jesus Christ. He went and gathered those people together in the church, you know, and he said, listen, this is the issue. You've probably brought it to to us. And so the apostle said, now, this is what, what needs to happen. Pick out seven men from among you, and here's the qualifications for them. And he lays out the qualifications. The leadership gave the spiritual qualifications. They were leading, they were taking on their spiritual mantle, and they said, now you Go pick out from among you people who meet these qualifications. Bring them back to us. We'll make sure. We'll all lay hands on them, and, and God will be honored, and we'll, and we'll set them into the ministry. That's what went on. And here's the qualifications. Firstly, they were men. That was what they were called there in, in Acts chapter 6, okay? Seven men from among you. Secondly, they were from among them. They were to be, let's just, you know, pick them out from among you. What does that mean? It's from among the disciples, from among believers. They were believers. They were disciples. They, they loved the Lord. They followed the Lord. They were, they were born again. Amen? 
So they were men, they were believers. Second, thirdly, they were of good repute. That means they had a great reputation. Reputation, right? They probably could speak better than I do. Uh, they were full of the Spirit. It means that you could, it was evident that they were led by the Lord in their life. There was the fruit of the Spirit in their life, and there was an empowering of the Holy Spirit in their life. You know, these people were not slouches. They knew the word. They knew doctrine. They knew truth. You know, you ask them about Jesus and the resurrection and his return. They would be able to tell you what those, what those were. They would be able to articulate the gospel. These are, it's important. And so they were full of the spirit. And these men had to be full of wisdom. That was the last thing. Because the practical matters in the church required wisdom. Think of how complex that was. Of how quickly people could have been upset at one another and and how everything could have been divided. It took real wisdom, not just knowledge, but knowing how to apply the scriptures to any given circumstance. Boy, we need people of wisdom. Amen? Men and women of wisdom today. And so, these men had to be full of wisdom. And so the apostles laid out these qualifications, which are, by the way, at the heart of what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in verse 5, it says here, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. And they chose Stephen. And notice, it talks about Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. And so these they set, and by the way, all these guys, just, just to give you the wisdom of the, of the church and the people they sent, they're not Jews. They were all Hellenists. All these names are Hellenist names. Wow. Talk about wisdom from among the disciples. They all got together and decided, you know what? What would be best is if we actually, the part that was being underrepresented, we went ahead, we're going to go ahead and pull from among those groups so these people feel loved and taken care of. That's amazing. That's the church for you, amen? And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose these people, verse 6, and they set them before the apostles. And what did the apostles do? They prayed and they laid their hands on them. And so the disciples, they picked those believers from among them, those qualified believers, and and and. And these seem to me to be the, the, the prototypes for the deacons in the church. The word deacon gets its root from the idea of doing menial tasks. Serving tables is, is one of them. If you go back into the root, the idea is serving tables, being a waiter, being a servant, being a slave. That's, that's the root. And so there's a connection here about what a deacon is. And notice what happens in verse 7 when the, the men of God who are called to be the overseers in the church are, are faithful to what God has called them to do in the word and prayer and the ministry that they've called them to in spiritual matters. And what happens when the other servants in the church that God has called in these other leadership capacities and the practical matters, when we complement one another, when it happens. Notice what happens in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The gospel impacted the, the, the world around them. But when you have elders deaking and deaking, 
Deeks, Elding. Um, yeah, that's why we need help. It's not right. It's not right. And I love to get me some deking in. I love deking. You guys know it. But the idea is that God has called us to be faithful to what he's called us to. And we work together for his glory in the service that he has given us. Amen? And I believe that this is why the Lord calls godly servants called deacons to the positions of leadership within the church. Because while the elders and pastors are called to the ministry of the word and prayer and so forth, there are practical matters within the church. Practical matters within the church. The working out of our faith uh, that need to be tended to. And, and when we neglect to do that, the body isn't functioning as it should. And the gospel doesn't go out to our, nor our good works. And so um, the church is, is, is kind of, dragging along. We're not functioning properly when we're not acting in accordance with what the head says here. And so similarly, the overseers, verse 8, similar to the overseers, therefore a deacon likewise must be dignified. It's a tall task to wait tables in the kingdom of God. You must be dignified. There are qualifications for these servant leaders in the church. Moving back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. This word dignified, like the call for men of good repute in Acts 6, as well as the call for men who are above reproach, who seek to be, become overseers there for in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the beginning here. So too, the servant in the role of a deacon in the church must be dignified. Dignified means to be revered because of their character. It's, it has the idea of reverend behind it. You're revered because of their character. Now, as you think about the church and you interact with people within the church, there are people that come to mind and go, man, that person's like, there's something about them. There, there's a Christ-likeness about them. Just their maturity, their love, and how they, they, they interact with us. Man, they minister to me in a way that's just profound. You know who they are among you. Amen? Well, that's the idea there is that there is this reverence for their character of who they are, that their, their Christ-likeness is evident. And so they, that's the overarching theme there is they've got to be uh, revered, so to speak. Uh, they must be dignified. And it says, secondly, it says not double-tongued. So this is what it looks like. Firstly, actually, they shouldn't be double-tongued. This means their speech is true. They have integrity in their speech. It means they aren't saying one thing to one person and... and and something else to another. They're honest and true in their speech. And then secondly, not addicted to much wine. And this is the same term used for overseers. It means that they're not preoccupied with the pursuit of wine or things that they're addicted to and all that kind of stuff. The idea is that the Lord blows the sails of their life, not wine or drugs or anything else. Thirdly, and I'm not going into depth on this because a lot of it's repeated of what we already went through. Um, nor greedy. Uh, for don, uh, dishonest gain. And since deacons are often dealing with issues of money and things like that um, in the handling of the distribution of money or resources, so there's no room for greed there. The church is not a means to make you rich. You are not to be fleeced. You're not to be looked at as an opportunity to be made money off of. That is not what a deacon, it can't be his motive, let alone an elder, right? And so... A deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Fourthly, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
Now, the mystery of the faith has the idea, Paul talks about the mysteries of the faith a long time. They were hidden, and now they're revealed through Christ's teachings, through the apostles' teachings. And so you hold to the gospel, you hold to the teachings of the apostles, and you do it with a clear conscience. In other words, you're walking in the light. This means that the deacon, they know their doctrine. They're not spiritual lightweights. They know their stuff. They know who Jesus is. They know about the, you know, the, the regular doctrines of, of Christianity. They know about, you know, Jesus coming in the flesh. They know about his, you know, his death, his resurrection. They know about his second coming. They know how to explain these things. They know about justification, sanctification, glorification, these simple elementary doctrines of the faith. They aren't spiritual lightweights. They know their stuff. They have a clear conscience. They're walking according to truth. Fifthly, verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Wow, look at this. What in the world? And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Yikes. I love the safeguards that the spirit puts in for the body and the the protection of the church. If only the leaders would know their Bible and actually follow it. Amen? How many of you have have been in a part of situations, I don't want to point things, but where you just feel like it's a talent show or it's, it's a popularity contest? God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't how, those aren't, those things aren't what's important to him. You need to have leaders who look beyond that stuff and look to these things. There's a time of testing, looking to even become a deacon. That's a position of servant leadership within the church. There needs to be a time of testing. Why do you think that is? What comes out of the deacons? The overseers, probably. And so the Lord puts it at the very beginning. He wants to make sure that that is, that's dealt with, you know, in Pop Warner. Right? Or whatever we call it. There's a time of testing. This is because you need time to see the character of someone, don't you? Displayed in the context of serving within the church. So quite often people come to me or one of the leaders and ask to help out. Some of you have done that. And it's not like instantly like, oh, yeah, here's the keys of the kingdom. Have fun. It's like, hey, will you show up at this? Will you do this menial task that's totally way below your abilities and your pay grade? That's on purpose. Why is that on purpose? You got to be tested. I'm going to put you in a position of spiritual authority or influence within the church until we can see your character over a period of time and rise up because the people that you're dealing with are precious in the sight of the Lord. And what you teach and what you say is important. I tell you, I've been a part of worship teams for 25 years. And there's a tremendous influence to put talented people on stage because they can sing or play guitar, or do all this type of stuff. Listen, we're not the world. We're not the world. It's not about that primarily. Yes, you've got to have the giftings that match the calling. 
because music is math, and if it doesn't add up, it's not music. I understand. The older I get, the less my math works, so time for a new mathematics. Never mind. This one. Um, so what I'm saying is that there's a tendency to just go over, over talent, over character. And God says we've got to look at character and gifting, and those things need to match up. That just takes time to see and develop. Anybody agree, you know, see that in your own lives? Let them be tested first. And this isn't, has, doesn't have anything to do about, you know, someone's gifting or capability. Someone could be very gifted and capable. You know, sometimes people get on the fast track because we know, uh, we know them from other ministries and other people or other churches and, type, and things like that. But I've, I've even had people who are very gifted and skilled and all that type of stuff. Just wait a season. Just wait. Will you wait with me for, for six months? If they aren't willing to wait for six months to serve, that, that's a big tell. You know? Or to do some kind of menial task for a while. And then it's like, okay, what was said is true. I've done my homework. The elders feel it's good or the leaders, whatever, in certain groups. All right, let's go. <laughs> it's a protection mechanism the Lord puts in there. We just got to obey him, amen? Which leads us to verse 11. As that testing is going to reveal what kind of man or woman you are. Verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. How many of you have a different rendering in your Bible? Raise your hand. It doesn't say wives. It says women. Yeah. In verse 11 is where we run into some translation issues. just want you to be aware of this. The word for wives is actually the word for women in the original, not wives. There isn't a word for wives. It's just the word women. And you'll have a footnote explaining that next to, the, next to that first phrase. Look down at the bottom of your Bible, it'll explain women. Right? You guys see that? And so the word for women could be interpreted as wives depending on the context. And so the translators, when they're looking at the context of this scripture, they're seeing that there's male elders, they're seeing that there's male deacons, they're seeing all this type of stuff, they're going, well, they they're most likely are talking about Deacons being male. So now they must be talking about the, their wives. And so the question comes up, well, why didn't they say anything about the elders' wives who are as much more consequential? Great question. And that's why a lot of great biblical scholars, they fall on either side of this. And so you have churches with women who are deacons and women who aren't deacons. Because they're trying to be true to this. They don't, they don't know. And truthfully, it's difficult to understand. And there's a lot of great Bible teachers who fall on both sides. But any of them, worth their grain of salt, they look at this and they see that the word is women. You can't get around it. It's, it's women. And so what many believe, in, and myself included, is that this is another category of deacons. Is that there's women servants in the church. And so some of you have an NIV that will say likewise women or something to that effect. That would be more technically accurate. Yay for the NIV. Now, if Paul is speaking of wives here, he didn't say anything about elders' wives. And, and for that reason, and the fact that the word is actually women, not wives, 
and that Paul uses the word likewise, which means this group is the same as deacons, tells me that there's another group here. It's another group he's speaking of. And I don't think he's speaking about the character of deacons' wives, although you could just fill those in for deacon wives because it would be true. If you had a believing deacon's wife, right? But rather, it introduces a new category of servants in the church, women who serve as deacons, who are women servants in the church. Now, we know Paul already has addressed the idea of if you're an overseer, that's, that's, a, that's a male position in the church. Women aren't supposed to exercise that spiritual authority over men in the church. That is laid out. He's already laid that. So whatever the role of the deacon is, it's not going to contradict what Paul already taught here. Okay? So we don't need to worry about that. The main thing to keep here is that the role of a deacon is not a primary teaching role. It's a servant role where people are assisting the elders and, and the Lord in serving his church and the practical needs of the flock. And let me just say that there are both men and women serving at CCF tirelessly behind the scenes, serving the body of Christ here in practical matters of the church all over the place. You're our backbone. We love you. And we haven't identified them as deacons because really the New Testament church really doesn't lay out, doesn't, doesn't, they more speak about the action than, than, than the role. But we're still working through this as leadership, believe it or not. But nevertheless, they're serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And so we have men, I'll just name a few like Doug and Scott heading up ushers and greeters ministries, making sure you're welcome and, and you're comfortable when you get here. What they do before you get here, along with the teams that they oversee, they're straightening up chairs, they're making sure the leaves are blowing off, and just tons of stuff. You have Bibles, you have pens, all those things in front of you. Things are in order and good for you. They're doing these things behind the scenes. So Doug and, and, and Scott, you have Mark, who uh, I'm not going to toot his horn too much because I'll get in trouble because he's a servant, but he's working tirelessly behind the scenes, keeping the building and grounds awesome. You wouldn't be using the toilets literally to this morning if he was not here yesterday, so I'd just give him a hard time. And there's those men leading our home fellowships, you know, like, like Dan, Jeff back there, and other guys, the elders and stuff like that, right? And others like Josh who are leading our youth or coming alongside our youth. And, and by the way, every time I mention the, any of these servants' names, they all cringe. Why? These are servants. They're behind the scenes, devoted to the menial task behind the church. They're not the, the face of, you know, of everything, but they're the heart and the backbone of the church. Godly men with Christ-like hearts, constantly serving. I could name more of you. Godly women, my gosh, you know? Women who serve in positions of leadership. Carol, you know, has just done our books for years and years. Great. <sighs> 
poured out our life, you know, silently for the church. Bless me over and over. Erica, just administrative assistant, just makes everything awesome every week. Seasoned saints like Judy. Love you, Judy. <laughs> you know, and Betty, probably watching at home, and Ramey, Karen, and just tirelessly working behind the scenes, just serving the women of our church and just making our families awesome and teaching truth and ministering to so many of the issues that are going on. Bible studies and Leisha overseeing the children's ministry or the kids' nursery or little ones. And Susie constantly just behind the scenes with Gary ministering to people all the time, silently at the CAC too. And obviously I could go on and on. You know, they're all servants. and They're all tremendous blessing to us. And it doesn't stop there. And if I didn't name you, you know, I just, I just named some. But all of these working in the very practical manners of the life of the church. And so that's why Paul says here in verse 11 that the women, they must be dignified. They must be dignified. It's a, it's a high task. It's a great calling. It's a noble task. And so it requires those noble, godly women. And again, dignified is the same word used for the male deacons, I believe, serving in the church. You have to be revered for your character. And they are. And Paul says the women must be dignified, that is, revered to your character, meaning they're not slanderers. He lays it out what that means to be revered. You're not slanderers. Slandered is the word diablos. And if you took any Spanish or whatever it is, it's, you know, devil. That's the word for devils, diablos. It means malicious gossip. Women can't be malicious gossips. Boy, there's a tendency in the human heart to be a malicious gossip for men and women. But women, you can't be malicious gossips and be in a position of leadership. But sober-minded, the idea is that they aren't drunks or addicted, but they're controlled by the Spirit. It's the same thing repeated for all the other positions there. They have good judgment. And let's be faithful in all things. In other words, trustworthy. And by the way, even this is referring to the wives. Of, if this is referring to the wives of deacon, deacons, um, same goes for them. <laughs> no matter how you translate it, people in leadership have quality, character, the character, quality, Christ-likeness. And again, what is being described and demanded of all positions of leadership is Christ-likeness. That's it. We're just more like Jesus every day. Amen. We, I want to grow up to be like my spiritual parents. Oh, man, precious. And so Paul, then Paul goes back to the men serving as deacons. We're going to bust through this. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so, again, uh, men serving as deacons have to be a one-woman kind of man. They, can't, they have to be faithful to their wife if they're married. And uh, similarly to overseers, his uh, his, his leadership is to be reflected in his home, right? there, managing their children and their own household well. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so 
men and women who serve well as deacons gain good standing. In other words, the way up is down. When you lay your life down and you serve this body, when you give your life to these people, Christ exalts you in this place. It's not something you seek after. It's something he bestows upon you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when I say your names this morning, you know, they're not said enough. And I know you'd rather have them not said at all. And it says they have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. I like what MacArthur said on that. It said successful service breeds confidence and assurance among those they serve. When you have good servant leadership, people are encouraged in their faith in the Lord. They go, wow, I want to be like that. Or, man, that the gospel's true in that person. And so Paul, in those first 13 verses, describes the qualifications for church leadership. Pretty profound, isn't it? That's why I slowed down. It's important to me. It's important to the Lord because it benefits uh, all of us and it glorifies him most importantly. And now he says to Timothy in verses 14 and 15, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And so this is one of the main reasons Paul's writing. Listen, I left you there because things are in chaos, and I want you to know what, it look, what godly leadership looks like, what godly service looks like, what godly worship looks like, because what we do as a church when we unite under the truth, when your life, when my life, when my calling, your calling, and our positions all come together in the various ways God's given, given us, we're a pillar of truth. Not only do we believe the truth, we live the truth, and it testifies out to the world around us. They look at it. It's not about our coolness. It's about our conformity to Jesus Christ. Coolness comes and goes, and you constantly have to re reinvent yourself, but truth is a pillar. It's immovable. I've been to the ruins in, the, in Jordan, these ancient Roman structures, and what's left after all the storms and destructions, these pillars that are standing in the midst of sand dunes and all this type of stuff. We're the pillar of truth. We're the buttress of truth. That's what the church is in this world. We don't conform to the world. We conform to Christ, and we declare him in truth and love. In verse 16, Paul just switches and just busts out of the truth that we declare here. Verse, verse 16, it's a quick hymn that the church, early church sang. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated or justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaiming, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory. And so the message of the church is centered upon the truth relating to Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And I'm not going to go into each one of those right now. But may our lives, may this church, may the overseers, may the servants, may the deacons, and may all of our, all the believers here uh, make up that fellowship.
that testifies to his truth and his love. Amen? Father, we come before you in awe, and we just thank you that not only have you given us an example, but you've put your spirit within us that compels us to humility, compels us to the cross, compels us to love one another and lay down our lives. And Father, I want to thank you so much for the servants in this church who have done that and those who are aspiring to be those servants. Lord, our pride just, it just keeps getting in the way. And so forgive us of our pride. Humble us, Lord, and lead us. And may, through our humility, Lord, may, may your gospel go forward as we love one another. And we're no longer about self, but about you and others. Teach us, Lord. Make us servants. As you came and took on flesh, wow, you didn't hold on to that position, but you humbled yourself. You were born in a manger. Let us be mindful of that. In the name of Jesus, amen.